Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Surely we would come in with summertime. No, instead we came in with what is apparently the most famous xylophone solo in all of opera. Yes. All of classical music, maybe. Really? That's what I was told. Mm-hmm. Ah, by Naomi or by Ian? No, by Ian. Apparently, if you do orchestral auditions, they will always make you play it. Oh, really? That's interesting. Fun fact. What are we talking about today, people? Well, that particular overture and that very famous xylophone solo belongs to the amazing opera Porgy and Bess. Hooray! Porgy and Bess by the Gershwins? The Gershwins and also uh, DuBose and Dorothy Hayward, mm-hmm. who were also involved in the creation. Mm-hmm. Very they nice. Wrote and this the is. novel that it was based on. Mm hmm. Yes, and this is very much a year of Porgy and Bess, or I guess a season of Porgy and Bess. It really is. Uh, definitely with the Metropolitan Opera production that, that opened the season there and has had an extremely successful run, uh, even adding performances, correct? They, they did. did. They added performances, and I believe it's one of the first times in Met Opera history that they've done that, right? I think right. so. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, good it's for such them. a rare thing that something sells out and then they just happen to have a break in the schedule where they can just Slot add surprise in. performances. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. But uh, us at Opera After Dark, we also got to partake in the Cincinnati Opera production of Porgy and Bess uh, last July, right? We did. We did. It was Quite a summer adventure for us as an Opera After Dark team. The hottest weekend of the summer. <laughs> it was. I'm pretty sure right. it was like the hottest weekend on record in like a decade in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, it was crazy. Super humid. Super like humid. That, that was the most humidity I've ever experienced in my life. Oh, it was like awful. 95% humidity and 90 to 95 degrees outside. It was rough. Right. But we had a lot of fun. I think I can say on behalf of all of us that it was an amazing time in Cincinnati. I mean, the performance was fantastic. The performers on stage were amazing. It was a great production. Also, the venue there, the music hall, where most of Cincinnati Opera productions are performed, is so beautiful, Uh, a great place to see an opera. 
And then the city itself, the area right around the music hall, uh, the OTR or Over the Rhine neighborhood in Cincinnati is a lot of fun. There's a lot of great restaurants and, and other things going on. So we had an amazing time. While we were there in Cincinnati, we also had the pleasure of speaking with three of the singers who performed in the production of Porgy and Bess. Lachelle Allen. My name is Lachelle Allen, and I'm singing the role of Mariah in Porgy and Bess. Janai Bruger. My name is Janai Bruger. I'm a soprano, and I'm singing Clara in the opera Porgy and Bess. And Morris Robinson, who performed the role of Porgy. It's my first time doing it fully staged. Uh, my first time singing it was two years ago, two and a half years ago, at La Scala, which came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting to ever sing this role. And the folks at La Scala called and said, we want you to sing Porgy. I said, all right, I'll do it. We got to meet a lot of different people at Cincinnati Opera. We got to talk with some of their artistic staff and their um, some of their young patrons and people involved in that program. And so... We had a really good time, and right. we got a lot of great stuff recorded that we wanted to share with everybody. Exactly. And it's worth noting that uh, this upcoming summer is the 100th season for Cincinnati Opera. And with that in mind, we actually will have an episode coming out uh, in the coming months that features Cincinnati Opera specifically in this anniversary year. But for now, we're focusing exclusively on Porgy and Bess. And it's about time. I mean, it's about time that we come around to talking about this opera, I feel like. I think this being the year of Porgy and Bess and the amount of traction and discussion that has happened around this opera is really exciting. And it's a really great work. There's a lot that you could talk about and dig into when discussing Porgy and Bess. So I think we're going to touch on just a few little historical contextual things will give you a like a the plot in a nutshell and then we're going to hear from some of the singers who actually perform this work and performed it in Cincinnati. So can you guys start us off with some background on Porgy and Bess? What's the deal? When did it happen? Where did it happen? So Porgy and Bess it premiered on September 30th 1935 in Boston and then it transferred to New York, and it didn't run in opera houses. It actually ran on Broadway. Oh. Mm-hmm. Is that why people debate whether or not it's an opera? I mean, I think us at Opera After Dark firmly believe it's an opera, but isn't that something that people question or have questioned? They do. When there was that revival a couple of years ago that was on Broadway with Norm Lewis and Andre McDonald and... I think at the end of the day, I can't remember who it was that said it, but the difference between an opera and a musical is like, one, you sing operatically. If you sing it operatically, it's an opera, and if you (laughs) sing it in a musical theater style, it's musical theater. (laughs) Right. Right. And I think that the, the other important distinguishing factor for me is that when Gershwin wrote the piece, he really wanted to write something that would be considered a serious opera, and not necessarily like serious like tone wise although it is a pretty dark story um something that was a serious composition and in which even though he was intentionally trying to write a what he called a folk opera and capture like a folk flavor of the of the cultures represented he 
he didn't ever really intend for it to go on Broadway or to be conceived as a Broadway musical or a Broadway show, which I think says a lot because Gershwin knew his way around a Broadway show. So, Definitely. <laughs> I mean, he wrote a ton of Broadway. And so for him to say, no, I, I'm intentionally approaching this differently, I think also lends itself well. And you can see it in the complexity of the score that he was really striving to fuse opera in like the most traditional sense with a kind of folk story that he really believed in. And he also was really fusing jazz idioms with with operatic traditions and with a little bit of Broadway influence in there. But it really was like an amalgamation or a fusion of all of these different styles. And so it was something where he was trying to bring a lot of things together into an operatic form. He wasn't trying to like take an operatic form and merge it into some other larger conception or project mm-hmm. are there other works by gershwin that like the average person would be familiar with a lot of the um musicals that he wrote i don't think people would probably know now i mean there was a revival of a crazy for you many many years ago not too many years ago because it was my first broadway <laughs> show <laughs> <laughs> but I think the thing that people would really know are the songs from those shows, mm-hmm. like um, Someone to Watch Over Me, Embraceable yes. You, and obviously the music from Porky and Bess is incredibly famous. Um, Summertime, oh, which yeah. actually opens a show and that you do hear repeated by various characters throughout the course of the opera. I think I read somewhere it is the most recorded song in in history. Yes, in, in, music the, history. in the history wow. of recorded music. Yep. It is the most often recorded song. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's interesting that it does. I didn't realize until we saw the opera this past summer. It was my first time seeing it. It's crazy because that also comes like it. it's literally the start of the opera. Yeah, like the overture happens and then all of a sudden we're playing the intro to summertime. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it just starts. Oh, yeah. yeah, that yeah. that aria is sung by the character Clara. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we talked with the soprano who sang the role of Clara in Cincinnati. Her name is Janai Brueger. And uh, this is what she had to say about kicking off the opera with the most famous tune from the whole thing. 
And before we jump into that, I should also say that the recordings that you've heard so far in this episode and uh, that you'll hear a little bit more of throughout the episode actually are not from the Cincinnati Opera production of Porgy and Bess. Uh, These are recordings that were licensed from the Naxos Music Library. So it's not the voices of the uh, individual singers that we interviewed that you hear singing on these tracks. And with that said, here's Janai Brueger. So Clara is uh, one of the characters that kind of symbolizes hope for the community. She's a young mother. Um, Her husband, Jake, uh, is like an entrepreneur, fisherman, really doing well with his fishing business. And they have a little baby. So she's like every new mother struggling at the beginning. But um, she kind of... Uh, symbolizes this hope and like what the younger generation can aspire to. They're like the ideal perfect family, if you will, in that community. And what makes it special is Summertime opens the show. It's the very top and it's not just a lullaby. It also is symbolizing hope for the future that she's able to give him a better life than what she has um, while also trying to help him go back to sleep and it's hot and sticky outside. So it's got that feel at the beginning, but you know, in the second verse, you do hear, like, the hope part, the symbolism of that. Um, difficulty with Clara is probably opening the show with uh, a <laughs> tune that everybody knows, and I think it's the one of the most recorded arias in the, you know, well, I don't want to say the world, but, I mean, there's so many renditions of Summertime. Um, so it's a little pressure to open the show with that, but, you know, I try to stay as true to what Gershwin wrote um, and, and to the character of Clara in that moment. And I really look at the words. Uh, it's, it's like I said, you know, it's hope and it's a lullaby. So I try to just use my voice, you know, as much as I can without trying to copy anybody else. You know, I always believe in being organic and natural and doing what's on the page, but using your voice to bring it out. So I maybe, you know, I think the high B at the end is originally not written in the score. And I can't remember who started that. Um, but now I think people are kind of expecting it. You know, if I didn't do it, they'd be like, what, what happened? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, like, I try to do that, but I, um, I like to do it softly. And, and that can be tricky to do when you have to sing over an orchestra and the chorus and reach all the way to the back of the house. But it's something I'm striving to do. So that that melody that you probably recognize or you know, even if you don't know that you know it, as Elspeth said, really does come back again and again throughout the piece. And it almost functions as like almost like a leitmotif for kind of symbolizing like the hope that people have in whatever situation. I feel like Gershwin knew a good tune. When he wrote it, <laughs> he was like, "Let's let's have this keep coming back." Right, right. So and, then, and so when the opera starts, the first character you meet is Clara, and she's singing this lullaby to her baby. And from that point onward, you're kind of like launched into this community 
of characters in Catfish Row, which is where the entire story takes place. And the genesis of this, just to give you a little bit of background, is that the the source material written by DuBose and Dorothy Hayward, um, I believe that it started as a novel and then they had plans to turn it into a stage play and then Gershwin approached them and said, I read the novel and I was just so taken with it. I just like read it in kind of like a feverish, like mad obsessive state over the course of like 24 hours and I really want to turn it into an opera. And they said to him, well, that's that's nice, but we were going to turn it into a stage play. So he said that that's totally fine. You can still do the stage play. I think it's even better if it's a novel than a stage play than an opera, because then by the time it becomes an opera, it's like part of the cultural consciousness and people will know it. And he wanted a long time to work on the music. So they agreed to do that. And then in that long gestation period, Gershwin actually went to the areas of South Carolina, right? He went to South Carolina and he went to the neighborhood that actually inspired the original novel because DuBose Hayward grew up in Charleston and there was a particular neighborhood that he would walk by where, um, I can't remember the name of the original neighborhood, but it was known for all of these different fruits and vegetable vendors on the street level that would have these calls that they would sing to get people to come buy their vegetables. And he walked by this street in this area every day on his way to work when he was a young man. And that whole coastal area of South Carolina uh, was settled by the Gullah people after the after slavery was abolished. And so it was a particular cultural group that settled there and had their own dialect and a lot of their own cultural norms and traditions that Gershwin wanted to try and authentically represent as much as possible in his opera. So he went and spent time there and attended all kinds of community events to then help him when he was trying to write the music and shape the operatic telling of the story. That's great, because I feel like historically in opera, composers don't do anything at all like that. <laughs> like, they <laughs> That's basically, not always true. Not always true, but but certainly up to that point in time, well, I don't know. I, don't I feel know. I like there's of, a lot. I feel like some composers did what they, what they could, like what they had available to them. Like Puccini sure. did try and do research, quote unquote, he certainly never traveled to like China or Japan or any of these or places. California. Or California. <laughs> that he was or Louisiana. Setting, right. Or Louisiana. But he did he did attempt to get his hands on things that could give him some kind of, you know, representation or inkling of it. So mm-hmm. I just think like it was a different time. The expectations were a little bit a little bit well, different. exactly. <laughs> that, that's all I was trying to say is mm-hmm. that in this time where there wasn't really an expectation that Gershwin would mm-hmm. do this, he went and did the research to make the piece as authentic as possible, mm-hmm. which I think is, is part of the reason why um, it's being performed so often today. You know, if, if he didn't take that care to, to try to make it representative, then it, it would be pretty hard to support per- performances today. If you catch my meaning. Definitely. I think that 
people still take issue with it. It's still a very contentious opera because Mm -hmm. it is written by a not by somebody from that cultural group. It is an outsider Mm -hmm. who is attempting to go in and kind of objectively take it all in and write that story through music. And even if he had the best of intentions, it still was not something drawn from his own personal, um, his own personal family history per se. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think because of that, and also because of the racial divide between Gershwin and the community that he was writing about, there are a lot of people who have a lot of issues with this opera and Mm -hmm. it has a history of being very, uh, very divided in how people think about it and what they think should happen with this opera. There's people that really believe that um, another thing Gershwin did in his estate, he actually wrote that he never wanted Porgy and Bess performed in blackface. He wanted actual African-American singers to be bringing these characters to life. And so it had a huge impact on essentially creating jobs for African-American singers at a time when they were largely uh, kept out of opera houses and off concert stages. And Mm -hmm. so some people view it as being this incredibly important historical work that helped break ground in that realm. But other people feel like despite that, it still perpetuates dangerous or negative stereotypes of that culture. And so they feel like it should never be performed because of that particular side effect of continually reviving the work. And then, of course, it's a whole other problem or kettle of fish when a singer has to decide whether or not they're actually going to sing one of these roles. Right. Right. There historically has been this question for singers, or, or many singers actually have been public about saying, they have concerns about performing in Porgy and Bess uh, because they don't want to be pigeonholed into then just performing in Porgy and Bess and not doing other repertoire. And we actually talked to each of the singers we interviewed about this um, because it's something that regularly comes up in conversation about this opera. So this is what they had to say. I mean, I look at that, I've been looking at that for my whole experience in music. So I do sing music outside of opera. So if I'm singing something in Broadway or um, just whatever, usually I'm cast as an aunt, a mother, a witch. I'm never a love interest. So I'm never the leading lady. (laughs) So that's one thing. And when I think about being typecast, you know, I, I expressed to you before the podcast that there are... Uh, three roles that I would love to just continually sing in my career. Uh, one being Mariah, one being Erda, and one being Za Principessa. So out of those three women, I see a line of strength, determination, and uh, even though Principessa is, uh, you know, I heard you talk about her, uh, <laughs> she's got her own thing going on, but she still is a strong woman who knows exactly what needs to happen, and she's doing what, what, she, what she needs to do to resolve an issue, basically. And so that's what happens with all of these characters. And so I wish that going forward, people would just look at the talent and not the shell, because I think that that's where we get caught up, looking at people and saying, oh, I only see her as this. And that's where we get stuck, because... 
literally, there are so many things that people can do outside of their, uh, their, their, um, what people determine uh, through their physicality, you know, instead of just listening to talent. I would love to be able to go to Germany and sing Erda, and, but would they see me as an Erda, you know, or would I have to do uh, scenes here in America? And that's the only, I'd hate for that to be the reality. So this is something that I'm sure lots of artists are working towards, uh, just to get equality on stage and to have more of a presence uh, no matter what you look like. If you can sing the role, I feel like you should be able to sing the role. Well, you know, I think that uh, the, the hesitancy was built in when I came into the business that other African-Americans that have been in the business for a long time said, you know, stay clear of this role. <clears throat> stay clear of this opera because, quite honestly, you could get pigeonholed. Now, I don't know if that was... I honestly believe that it was the, pro- the fault of the administrators that could not see past skin color and cast appropriately. Um, and that is still a problem that we're facing, but I don't think we're facing it as much now. Uh, there are more people like myself that have taken the time to approach this thing. And I've proven, I think, for the last 17 years, even before I did it at La Scala, I'd been singing for 17 years, um, I proved, I have proven that I can sing German and Italian repertoire at eight houses for 17 years. And so taking this on was... Certainly a challenge and a risk, but the risk factors are a lot lower once you've been in the industry for almost 20 years. You know, if I had come right out of the Met program and started singing Porgy and Bess, who knows if anyone would ever thought I could sing Zorastro or anyone thought I could sing Ramfitz or Spada for Chile or Zacharia or, you know, or Fazel Tintas Rangold or any of those other roles that I've done numerous times in numerous houses. So uh, the risk factor certainly was taken into consideration, but I felt like it was, I was justified in giving it a shot. And if it didn't work out, I can always go back and sing the other roles, which in, uh, after doing my first one, I was offered like eight more. It was ridiculous. Like I sang Porgy once and all these Porgies started appearing. I was like, well, <laughs> we got to be a little bit smarter about this. So, uh, you know, it's cool. I mean, I'm enjoying the role. Uh, I don't know how many more times I'm going to sing it. It would have to be the right situation for me. And, uh, and, and that means there are a number of factors that come into play. So we'll just see how they, how it goes and how it falls into my schedule if it appears again. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty great how now, at least as, you know, in this current season, as this opera is being performed, it seems like singers aren't as worried about being pigeonholed into this opera. And perfect evidence of that was this past summer in Cincinnati when Janai Brueger performed Susanna in Le Nozze di Figaro and then immediately followed that with Porgy and Bess. Um, it just goes to show that it it's not an issue, at least certainly not at, at Cincinnati Opera. But should we talk a little bit about the plot? Yeah, let's do it. Um, what happens in this opera? So a lot happens. There are a lot of characters in this opera, so I'm going to try and pare it down to just like the bare bare like how to explain this opera in in four sentences yeah it's a huge cast right a huge (laughs) cast so it takes place in a catfish row in um south carolina and it concerns it's the story of a man named porgy who was a beggar and he lives in this community with all these other people basically porgy falls in love with a, a woman named bess who is sort of the stereotypical fallen woman she is an alcoholic and she's a drug addict 
And when we meet her, she is currently the girlfriend of a very nasty man named Crown. And when we meet them, we also meet their friend who is known as Sport in Life, who is basically their drug dealer. And he <laughs> he deals in um, what they call in the opera Happy Dust, which is, it's cocaine, right? It's cocaine. It's cocaine, mm-hmm. which is yeah. cocaine. So, you know, some stuff happens. Crown murders somebody and has to go on the run, abandoning Bess. And Porky decides to take her in. And then they fall in love. And it's all about how she is sort of taken in by the community eventually. And Porgy is trying to keep her away from these bad people. Crown comes back for her. She tries to refuse to go. Some really bad stuff happens to her. And then Porgy promises that he'll protect her no matter what. And essentially what happens is he gets carted away by the cops um, because he's questioned for the murder of Crown, which he definitely does do. Mm -hmm. And while he's gone... Sport and Life comes to Bess, and Sport and Life has been singing this whole time. One of his famous numbers is there's a boat that's leaving soon for New York, where he's basically saying, Bess, you're so beautiful. If you came with me to New York, we would live it up. And basically what he wants her to do is come to New York with him, and he would be her pimp. Mm-hmm. And they would make a lot of money, and they would live the high life, the glamorous life up in New York. Um, and so... And he's like, Porgy's never coming back. He's like, you know, he's... He keeps got- telling her Porgy's gone. He's been arrested. Right. He's never coming back. And so she takes a hit of happy dust and is like, yeah, let's do it. And so they go. And of course, Porgy comes back and it's like, where's Bess? And everyone in town's like, oh, she totally ditched you. She went to New York. And the opera ends very sadly and yet somehow very upliftingly. Right. Um, where he sings, Lord, I'm on my way. And Porgy's like, well... I guess I'm going to walk to New York and get Bess. And that's how it ends. <laughs> yes. Right. It's it's uh, it's pretty intense in that way. It's emotionally intense, definitely. It's emotionally intense. And I, always, yeah. I just want to grab him and shake him and be like, sir, how are you going to find them? Are you, are you walking? <laughs> are you taking your goat cart with you to New York? Like, how are you getting there? Are you taking the boat as well? I had a lot of questions. Right. Just not right. answered at the end. And then if you actually get there, how are you going to find them? How will you find them? Someone yeah. pointed out to me, it does buck the the norm where it's an opera named after two people. And at the end, they are technically both still alive. Right. That's true. That's true. Another uh, an important thing to include in, in talking about this opera and talking about Porgy is that uh, he's physically handicapped? It's it's written into to the opera that he, he is, has a physical he is handicap, mm-hmm. and, handicap and, the and, and has a difficult Porgy time was, walking. Was actually based on a real person, mm-hmm. and he was a real person known in the real equivalent of of Catfish Row, and mm-hmm. he I believe he was lame in one leg, and so or lame somehow, so he would get around by by sitting in a cart that a goat would pull. And apparently the real Porgy was actually a really crass person and got in trouble with the cops quite a bit. And he was like uh, an addicted gambler. Mm-hmm. And, and so DeBose Hayward's um, portrayal of this character was inspired by, quote unquote, the real Porgy. But DuBose Hayward really turned that character into like a much more heroic character and mm-hmm. more loved character but that that physical disability is maintained both in the novel and in, in the opera mm-hmm. sadly the two productions of this opera i've seen did not have a goat 
Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, enough with the goats, Elspeth. <laughs> uh, animals on stage are fun. <laughs> Just wanted a goat. We did talk with Morris Robinson, who portrayed Porgy uh, in the Cincinnati Opera production of Porgy and Bess. And this is what he had to say about physically portraying Porgy, uh, as well as other aspects of the role. It's been exciting. It's, uh, I've seen this production, but uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to call it by numbers. I wanted to do my own thing. Um, you know, within reason. I didn't come in and say I'm going to direct it this way. I wanted to do what they wanted, but I also wanted to implement myself into it. So uh, it's, been, it's been very exciting, very rewarding. I'm discovering new things as recently uh, as last night. And I'm probably going to do something different tomorrow. You know, it just depends, you know. I like having that. Uh, I'm learning more so that, you know, my roles become, as I become more entrenched with them and familiar with them, that the natural instincts take over the staging. So as long as I'm operating within a realm of what is acceptable, I think that, you know, you have time to to react, you know, so my reaction may not be the same every night to certain situations and stimuli. So, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying that part of it. Uh, they're giving me the freedom and flexibility to tell the story, so I'm telling the story. I enjoy breaking the paradigm of him being the kick puppy. Uh, I'm so used to hearing people portray him as, oh, poor little Porgy, you know, bad old crown, took his girl, you know. And, you know, the way the story is written, if you don't add anything to it, I think that crown... Porgy is the baddest dude in the opera. I mean, he literally makes a decision in the second duet. Um, I love you, Porgy, that. He asks her, if there were no crown, then what? She says, I love you, Porgy. He's like, I, I got to kill him. I mean, if there were no crown, means what? Am I going to magically make him disappear? What are the options, you know? Am I going to ship him off in a box at FedEx and hope he didn't come back? No, he decides then, I'm going to murder him. And he does it with his bare hands. Uh, 
you know, Porgy's physical strength has never been questioned. In fact, they talk about it throughout the opera, how strong he is. And usually when you are debilitated or have a handicap, your other senses pick up and, and uh, compensate for that loss. So I can imagine someone that's been rolling around with his hands and knees for a number of years, you know, has developed a very big and strong upper body. So uh, one of the challenges also is I'm a huge, very physically imposing guy. And uh, uh, there aren't that many crowns out there that look like they can take me out. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, opera is, is imagination. and uh, But I try my best to really exemplify a handicapped individual that really can't walk well. And that's been challenging, too, because, you know, you're yourself every day. And then for six hours, you got to go put a crutch on your arm and walk like you can barely make it. And uh, that becomes challenging, too. So it's all been it's all been fun, though, man. You know, I enjoy creating. So another important character in this opera is the character of Mariah, who's kind of the matriarch in this community. Uh, and in the Cincinnati Opera production, uh, that role was performed by Lachelle Allen. And uh, so this is what she had to say about Mariah and portraying that role. She is the matriarch, the caregiver. She looks out for everyone in the community. And I did describe her earlier as a badass. Mm -hmm. uh, she loves hard, but she also knows how to handle things that need to be handled in the dark. So she has that skill set as well. Um, and, you know, so there's a little bit of a mob quality, uh, you know, because she has her people that she can call upon to do things that, uh, you know, that people just maybe, maybe, maybe they don't want to talk about that openly, you know, the things that are behind the scenes. <laughs> There is, in this particular production, a strong emphasis on the power of women in community. And especially now, with everything that's going on and with women rising up and taking the reins and saying, listen, this is how it should have been in the beginning. 
<laughs> you know, we are claiming and reclaiming power. Uh, so I love the fact that there are strong figures in this opera like Mariah, like Serena, and the younger women who are looking up to them uh, to figure out how to conduct themselves. Um, and sometimes they take part in helping Mariah uh, do the dirty work, which is okay. This is a part of life. Uh, but also in how to take care of their men and raise their children and uh, to be loving and supportive of each other and to strive for something that is higher than what we have seen around us. So I love that example. It was so amazing to hear about Porgy and Bess from the perspective of these amazing singers who are actually portraying these characters and bringing them to life on stage. Certainly from talking to them and also from seeing the opera and just seeing the amazing like resurgence it seems to be having lately, right. I think it's clear that Porgy and Bess is a really important American opera, an important American work. And I would say it's, it's the quintessential american opera it is the quintessential american i would opera. say so yeah yeah i think that's right and luckily as you said you know it's popping up more and more mm -hmm. so if you're listening to this and you see that porgy and bess is coming to an opera company near you you should definitely check it out i'm so happy that i finally got a chance to see it after hearing so much about it absolutely and even you know if you're afraid of opera if you went to porgy and bess truly you would know most of the first half of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's nothing it's nothing but tunes. The tunes are really good. Mm -hmm. This podcast is called Opera After Dark, so I'm hopeful people listening aren't afraid of opera because we're deep in it. I would hope. I would hope, but let's say if you really want to bring your friend to the opera right. who's afraid of opera, right, this is right. a great place to start. Yeah, nothing but yeah, tunes. Yeah, definitely. If you happen to be a met on demand subscriber i'm sure you can expect this to come onto that subscription in the coming months as it just had a performance live in hd yeah the uh, hd so. is probably over by the time you're listening to this but mm -hmm. it will definitely be up there on demand in a couple of months i would guess yeah so we definitely enjoyed seeing it. We've enjoyed talking about the opera. And so we certainly want to say thanks to Cincinnati Opera for bringing us out uh, to explore this opera with them. Uh, we're excited to talk a little bit more about that company in the coming months. Also, thank you so much to our singers who took time out of their very busy rehearsal schedule to talk with us when we were in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. It was such a pleasure and a joy to hear about this work and hear about what you're doing and get to know all of them a little bit better while we were there. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm. We actually spoke with them the day before opening night. It was right. their Whew. their off day before opening night, and they came to talk with us. So we're so grateful. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know, either by leaving a review wherever you're listening to this podcast you can always reach us at info at operaafterdark.com 
or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And keep your ear out uh, in a few months from now for more on Cincinnati Opera as we circle back to the company. And also, we might just surprise you with some extra tidbits about Porgy and Bess down the road. Definitely. I guess you should subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of that. Please do. Please do. All right. That's enough reminders from us. Thank you so, so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm Kyle. I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth. Thanks Thanks again for for listening. listening. Bye. Bye.